Open to Luke 18 if you have a Bible. Um, you know, you grow up in the church as I did, and you see some pendulum swings. Do you guys know that? Do you know that the church history is just like the world history? It's fairly cyclical. Um, things kind of come and go, and everybody thinks that they found something new, but they really just found something that was discovered 400 years earlier, um, and they're rediscovering. Do you guys know that? Um, and it's good, because I love the seasons of God. He brings refreshing to different messages. He brings recentering, because, you know, it's, I was in a church once, um, it was a great church, uh, but it was the gospel um, message of that church was purely Father's heart-focused, which is an amazing message. It's one of my favorite messages to preach. I kind of wish I could just preach it to you this morning because I think it's always good. And yet what happened was interesting. It's like it started to drift and minimize Jesus, which how many know that's not good? Just usually not a good idea in church to minimize Jesus. But so God, but these things happen, right? And so in 94, what happened was we had a real focus on Jesus, but not as much on Holy Spirit and Father. So they kind of brought that in with this renewal in 94. And then, you know, we kind of got into Father. And then this church that I was in needed to come back and get recentered on Jesus. And there's these kind of shifts. And God just keeps, he's a loving Father who just kind of guides us through, you know? And one of the great things that's come out of this last 24 year, and it's really longer than that, but um, shift that we've been a part of, that this church is born out of, which is the renewal that came into the vineyard in Toronto, is there's been a a real focus on identity uh, and who we are in Christ. Uh, and, And a real focus on who, you know, declaring who we are and focusing on who we are, and it's been really, really, really good. It's changed my life. Um, But in it, like anything, there's, there's a hedge, too, in that. And I know that sounds maybe a little crazy, but we're going to explore that because Jesus looks at that out of a revival movement that was happening when he was walking the earth and how that went too far beyond a hedge. And we see some of that in Luke 18. So, pull up Luke 18, and let's go, just a second here. Be good if I was organized myself, because that text is a little small for me, because I forgot my glasses at home. Fool. Um, All right. So Jesus is teaching in parables. You know, Jesus, I love his parables. Um, They're often mysterious, and they're full of principles. You know, I think one of the things you see in parables is he goes to these extremes so that he tries to remove the wiggle room. Do you know what I mean? Like, because, you know, you can tell a story and it's like, yeah, it doesn't really apply to me. But then he tries to make it so extreme that it applies to everybody. It's like, yeah, good luck, good luck getting out of that. And so he's got this parable he's teaching and he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the characters are important because nowadays we, how many people would like to be identified as a Pharisee? I mean, I see those hands, thank you. Thank you. There we go, okay. Um, no, but really, we gotta understand that to the, to the people that Jesus is talking to, the Pharisee would be who they considered to be righteous. The Pharisees were a revival movement that came to Israel Well, they were being ruled over by Rome and said, we have to get back to keeping the covenant. We have to get back to the covenant. We have to get back to the law of Moses because only then will God deliver us. We have to, they were a repentance movement. They were trying to bring people back to the covenant of God. So it's easy for us now to look and say, yeah, nobody wants to be a Pharisee. But in that day, that's who everyone assumed was righteous. And the tax collector, the tax collector was the one who was in league with Rome. I mean, you couldn't be less righteous. This isn't like, this isn't your CPA, okay? The tax collector, like this isn't the guy you go to do your taxes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the guy who has chosen to align himself with the enemy, with the ruling nation, and collect for them from you, and often do it in a way that lines his own pocket. So you've got these two characters Jesus is talking about, and he does it all the time, doesn't he? He keeps, keeps doing this, and frankly, you can read all of Luke 18, and we'll look at a little more of it, but what you're going to see is it's consistent throughout. It's the wrong one who ends up in the right place for their culture. Because we can sit here and think, I'm certainly not a Pharisee. But it's so easy to become one in our hearts. I have been, I struggle with being like a Pharisee. I mean, you look at that prayer and you think, yeah, that's not a good prayer, but I'm like, really, it's not that far off from prayers I've said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this world. God, I'm so glad that I don't walk in the sexual immorality of this age. God, I'm so glad I don't walk in the unbelief. Thank you. I'm just, God, I I'm, you know, I'm doing things well, and I'm glad I am in a good place, God. I'm doing great, and I'm glad. It doesn't sound like that bad of a prayer, does it? When you put it that way. And it's very easy to get there in today's world because, really, things are pretty grim. It's, it's pretty stark, the difference when you start to hang out with some people in the world and the things they believe. It's, it's pretty stark, the difference. And it's pretty easy to sit there and go, whew, I am glad I'm not that guy. God is going to get him, I tell you what. It's pretty easy to go there. What's more, we've really become people in this pendulum swing in positive identity who are 
sometimes so concerned with positive declaration that we forget about humility. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I've smacked people around for years telling them, you're not a sinner, you're a saint. And you are. And you are. But I would, when I read this, I'm like, oh man, I'd rather be humble than be self-righteous. I'd rather be humble than be humbled because it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be one or the other. The one who simply confessed that he needed God's mercy was justified. The other was not. Because when we look at that pharisaical prayer, it's entirely self-focused. Right? I thank you that I am not like these other people. I fast. I give tithes. Yeah. It's I-focused. It's me-centered. See, the Pharisees believed that their good works could justify them. And what they were trying to do in their revival movement, they were trying to bring people back into a place where they tried hard enough to do good works in order to be justified before the Lord. And what God's coming and saying is, in making it extreme, by making it the worst guy versus the most righteous-looking guy, is saying, it has nothing to do with your own righteousness. It has everything to do with the goodness of God and his mercy. So if you're making it about your, yourself, your own ability to do right, your own ability to keep, to keep these things, to not be like other men, to not be unjust, man, I'm sometimes I'm unjust. I don't get it all right. I need the mercy of God. No, I'm not a sinner, but I don't get it right every day. And if I have to get it right every day to be justified, then I'll never be justified. If my good works can accomplish my justification then there was no need for the cross, and it was a cruel act. I render it worthless. So when I come to him, it's not bad to remember that it's only his goodness. It's not mine. This kind of thinking will save you from, man, I had a good week, I'm looking forward to church. Man, I had a bad week. I don't want to go. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only person who's ever thought like that in my life, but it's like, man, I'm a, I made a mess this week. I do not want to go to church. This week I did great. I'm looking forward to worship. It's like, because I'm coming based on my own goodness. You know, I used to be a worship leader, and um, <laughs> about 14 years ago, I was a worship leader in my dad's church, and it was an interesting season for me because uh, I had come back to the Lord just a few years earlier. I mean, I'd, I'd always gone to church, but I'd really walked into a life of sin. And I'll, I'm going to tell you a little more about that later. Um, but first, I get to tell you a, a different humiliating story. Um, it's, I, I pleaded, I was like, 
I was talking to Holly. I'm like, I can't tell this story. She's like, why? I'm like, it's just embarrassing. It's just really, truly humiliating. She was like, well, that's good. Tell it. <laughs> um, I was a worship leader, and I was, honestly, I was desperate to see a move of God. You know, I was a kid, uh, I was nine years old, uh, living outside of Toronto. My dad was pastoring another vineyard church 45 minutes away. Um, The Spirit of God came and fell on Toronto in a way that, you know, we felt like had never been done before, but really it just hadn't been doing it like that recently. But the Spirit of God moved, and it was an incredible move of God. And uh, how many people know what I'm talking about when I talk about 94 in Toronto and all that? Okay, a few of you, not many. Um... Basically, Randy Clark was there in a church of 125 people preaching. He invited the Holy Spirit to come, and all of a sudden, people erupted in laughter. They were falling down. It was like it was chaos. And what happened in 94 was in a, in a city that has a greater, the greater Toronto area is about 6 million people, uh, the number one tourist attraction, a place that has Niagara Falls nearby, a place that has like the CN Tower, professional sports team, the number one tourist attraction was a church near the Toronto airport. And that's pretty good. That's when you know it's a move of God, when you can, you know, beat out Niagara Falls. Um, you know, like, one act of God is better, than, is better than the other in this case. So, I was born, you know, like, my church life was born in revival. It was born in renewal. It was, it, I loved it. And, but then, you know, there's seasons of God, and we don't understand why, but we always long for him to move again, don't we? We're like, oh, do it again, Lord, do it again, Lord, do it again, Lord. And, you know, I was a worship leader, and I was really crying out in my worship for God to show up in a powerful way. But my problem was, I thought it had a lot to do with me. And so I would work hard, I would practice my sets, and practice is good. You know, I would, I would do everything I knew to do right. And it was around this time, there was an album that came out of um, a church in Morningstar, a worship album, and it was an incredible thing. This, this worship leader's leading worship um, and a, a glory cloud came into the room. A, a, a visible cloud came in, and everybody was on their faces, and it lasted a long time. And it was cool, because in the recording, in the room, they heard this rushing wind, and then in the recording, of course, the rushing wind was on it. But what they did was they were trying to figure out where which mics was coming from, because they actually wanted to turn it down. Um, it was pretty loud. But they turned off every channel on the recording, and yet it was still there. It was just embedded in the recording. It wasn't even coming through a microphone, which is kind of cool, right? Here was the thing. This worship leader had had a massive moral failure a few years earlier. Huge. Run out of a lot of churches because of it. And one day I led worship, and, uh, man, I was just... um, Josh and Chuck and Stephen, you'll get this. You, You ever have those sets where you're like... When you plan it, you're like, oh man, this is going to be a good one. I can feel it. And then you get up there, and it is like just deer in the headlights looking back at you. And almost confusion. What is he, what is he doing? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> and it was one of those. And man, I, I nearly ran out of the building after my worship set, I, and I went to my car, and I... And I remember I actually punched the dash and I was so angry and I was so upset. And I was like, you know, I just heard the recording that week and I was like, God, here I am doing it right, living a moral life, and I get the deer in the headlights confused look. And here's this guy who's had this huge moral failure and a glory cloud comes in. What the heck's that about, God? Because I thought, 
I could earn it. And I thought I could deserve it. I thought I could be good enough to make him show up. And I burned out from that. Do you know that? I had to, I had to resign from that job. And I swore I'd never be in ministry again. Clearly very prophetic, very prophetic. Um, no, I just was like, no, I'm not going to be in ministry. I can't do it. Because I thought it was about my goodness. I thought about, it was about my ability to not be like other men. I didn't realize it was about his goodness and his mercy. It's about his goodness and his mercy. Let's skip down to verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I'll pause there for a second because this is the same Jesus who said he was the good shepherd. So how many people think that Jesus was actually saying, one, that he wasn't good, and two, that he wasn't God? That's probably not what he was saying to this guy, right? But even Jesus wasn't afraid to make what sounded like a negative identity statement only because what he was pointing out to this man was, why do you call me good? Why, do you, why does this guy call him good? Because he thinks he's good. And he thinks because he's good, he can decide who else is good. You see that? Because, because this ruler, and we're going to see why he thinks he's good in just a second, but because he thinks he's good, he can decide who else is good. It puts him, when you're in that place of I'm righteous and I'm good, I can decide who else is righteous and good too, because they've met the same moral standard as I have. So right off the top, this guy doesn't even see it, but Jesus answers his question right away. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Recognize that you're not good, only God is good is what Jesus is saying, really. That's what he's saying right off the top. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Recognize that you're not good, only God is good. So he continues though with, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth which is impressive, really. I mean, I, I don't believe him. Uh, I can, all right, the adultery murder, all right, I mean, steal. I guess they didn't have five-cent candies back in the day. I'm not going to lie. There's a few of those that went missing in my day. But, and bear false witness, never told a lie, nothing. That's great. Wow, I'm impressed. But honor your father and mother. Had he never been a teenager? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, um, so Jesus... Hearing this says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now, does God hate money and does God hate the rich? No. But God hates idolatry. And self-sufficiency is the ultimate idolatry in terms of it makes the idol of yourself. 
doesn't it? And money really makes self-sufficiency easy. Do you know that? Like, it's so easy to make money an idol because it becomes your sufficiency. And even more in that day, wealth, even more than today, was associated with some sense of righteousness. If you were wealthy, you were better. Frankly, guys, we still do that. I still struggle with that judgment myself. Um, like, it, sorry, confession time, but I still struggle with this sense of You know, when I see somebody who's in a hard time financially, I I can struggle. My mind can go to the place of, why why doesn't he just get a job? Why can't he just take care of his business? Do you know what I mean? We tend to uh, go to the place of judgment, and then we assume you meet somebody who's doing pretty well, and you're like, wow, they're doing something right. These guys are good. You know, wish I had their tithe check. They'd be good. It's like, sorry, is that too honest? It, like, is that too honest for you guys? For me to just say that that's the reality sometimes of what goes on in my heart? Because, and even more then, wealth was associated with goodness. And yet, only goodness can come from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. See, what, this, what Jesus is actually saying to this guy is you have to die to yourself. You have to die to the things that you think make you good so that you can come follow me. Because as long as you have those things that you think justify you, as long as you have those things that you think make you sufficient, you don't know. You don't know that you need me. In Matthew, in the Beatitudes, Jesus writes, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, it's blessed are the poor. Now, why is it blessed to be poor or poor in spirit? Because you recognize your need. You recognize your lack. You recognize your sense of dependency. You recognize that you can't make it on your own. You're going to need somebody. Basically, you recognize, I'm going to need God to come through for me. It puts you in a place of desperation, and a place of desperation is a place that God can operate. So it has nothing to do with money and it has everything to do with being desperate for him and being desperate for him to create a miracle in your life. Because we have a jealous God. He wants you to have no other gods before him. He wants to be your provision. He wants to be your goodness. He wants to be your justification. He wants to be your everything. You have a jealous God who says, I don't want you to have anything else before me. And so it's blessed to be poor because you recognize that you have nothing and you need him. But it's hard to die to yourself. Continuing on, Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And again, I mean, that's all of what I just talked about. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? So that's interesting. The question really lends itself to... Um, their clear understanding uh, in terms of wealth, right? Because if they clearly thought wealth could get them into the kingdom, because when he says it's hard for a person who's wealthy to get in the kingdom, then they're like, well, if the wealthy can't get in, then who can get in? 
right? I mean, they wouldn't ask the question if, it wasn't, if that wasn't in their minds. This is how entrenched in their culture it is. And Jesus' answer is perfect. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We have to recognize that salvation, that entering into the kingdom, that the fullness of God isn't possible in our own strength. There is nothing on earth that can get you in. Only God can do it. Do you guys hear me? So that self-righteousness, that sense of self-sufficiency, it can't get you there. So what can? God. So how can we respond to him? How should we come to him? And I think this is an important question because I don't want to swing the pendulum too far the other way, okay? I really want to be careful that we don't go into now self-loathing because self is still the beginning of that. Like, God doesn't also want us to come and say, God, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, I'm so nothing, No, that doesn't get you anywhere. Self-loathing will only keep you in self-hatred. God doesn't want us in self-hatred. It'll only keep you in shame and guilt. God doesn't want us there. He set us free from that. What God wants is for us to recognize that we actually no longer live. Therefore, it's not actually about us. Right? I mean, doesn't Paul say, I no longer live, but Christ lives through me? So if I don't live, then it's not about me. It's about him. When our approach to God is based on our goodness, you will either be self-righteous or self-loathing. Both are wrong. Our approach to God can only be based on his goodness. Can only be based on the fact that he alone is good. And so we come to him. You know... We used to, Holly and I had a, a funny little night on Wednesday. It was great. I don't know how we got onto it, but we started listening to really old, cheesy uh, vineyard songs. <laughs> and some of them were like, you know, you'd sit there and I, I had my guitar. And we'd be like, hey, I wonder if you could revive. No, you can't revive that one. That is cheesy. It, it is not redeemable. Um, and then a few other ones are like, well, if you slow it down enough, um, you can take some of that sing-songy swaying out of it, and you can kind of get there. And, but the interesting thing was, as we, as we were listening to these songs, we weren't afraid of humility in our worship. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not making a comparison. I was just so struck by the words that came out of even that move, came into, we went, I mean, we were going back to the 80s. It was, it was some golden oldies. But... We would, we would sing, it's our confession, Lord, that we're weak, so very weak, but you are strong. And though I have nothing, Lord, to lay at your feet, I come to your feet and say, help us along. We have to be willing to humble ourselves so that he can exalt us. See, it's an upside-down kingdom. And it's the humble who get exalted. Luke 18 starts with a story of a widow. In the developing world still, the widow is about as low as you can be. And it was then. 
And then it goes to the tax collector. Not a good guy, we talked about that. And he's justified. And then it goes into the children and says, unless you're like a little child, again, looked down on in their culture, really not of value. And then it goes to the poor. Luke puts these stories and, and sayings and things of Jesus together for a reason because he's trying to show us it's the humble who get the kingdom. It's the people who come from the low place that get the kingdom. It's not the people who you think are going to get it because they're righteous. You know, we keep wanting... I was struck by this. You know, I'm not big on pop culture, but it's like some of my young adults are more that way and stuff, and I get to know them, but it's... You know, we, you ever heard somebody who really wanted their favorite actor or their favorite singer to be a Christian? It's like they're trying to like find a way through their words, be like, I think there might be some Jesus in there. It's like we want to, but it's like that's not what God needs. He's not looking for, he's not looking for the rulers to get saved. I mean, he wants everybody, of course, but he's gonna work through the low people like you and me. But we have to be willing to humble ourselves. If we come into Christ and then become self-righteous, we're of no good to the world. Do you know that? God tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. But when we try and say we're better than them and we're apart from them and we're so much separated from them, look at how much better we do things than them. We create no room for them to come and meet Jesus. Do you guys, like, do you get that that's true? Do you know that that's true? When I say, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like those ones. Guys, I would be exactly like those ones if it wasn't for Jesus. In fact, I was those ones. I was those ones. I was caught up in sin, and it's only because of his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his favor. It's only because of his cross that I get to have some goodness in my life. And anything that's good that flows from me comes from him, and I can take no credit for it. I can't boast in myself. I have to boast in the Lord. Because if I'm boasting in myself, I still think it's about me. And if it's about me, then I have to do things right and I have to do things perfectly in order to get in, in order to experience the goodness of God. And I can't do that. I don't know about you, maybe you guys are better at living morally. I've been talking to my young adults and, and the youth a little bit lately about I've decided I'm giving up on trying. Um, I'm de I've decided I'm going to give up on trying. I spent most of my life trying to do the right thing, trying to be good, trying to... Man, the one that I used to struggle with a lot, I got over it, was trying to have a quiet time. Like, trying to have those good disciplines, you know what I mean? And I'm sorry, I, again, maybe too honest for you, but I'm terrible at the morning quiet time. I'm just awful at it. Like, I get up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. Ooh, ESPN articles. Those are good. <laughs> like, what, what was the baseball score last? Oh, sorry, Jesus, 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 right? It's like, you know, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Right, no, no, wait, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, man, I got a lot of work to do today. And it's like, man, I just, I was terrible at it. And I would get done, I would, and I married the woman who is amazing at it. I mean, she's sitting, I, I, 
It was stacked up against me. I would come down in the morning when I was a kid, and there's my parents in their bathrobes already at 7.30 in the morning, you know, reading their Bible, the worship music's on, and I'm like, oh, man, they are so good. It's amazing. And that's like, that's the image. And then I marry a woman who's like, yeah, that's what I do too. She's like, every morning she's out there with her journal and her Bible and her coffee, and I'm not allowed to talk to her. Um, It's very clear that's Jesus time. (laughs) And I'm like, and so I'm like, why can't I do this? I gotta be more disciplined. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and all I'm doing is feeling worse about myself and my inability. Am I the only person who sucks at quiet times? Okay. So I, I was talking about it with Rosalie one day, and she was like, well, stop trying. And then just ask God to change your heart. And then just let go. You know, there was times, and I think Chuck t- touched on it and where earlier, where, you know, there's times where you command your spirit, and David would be like, why are you downcast on my soul? And he'd talk himself up. But then there's other times where he would just be like, God, you got to do it. Create in me a clean heart. Cre- you do the work. I can't make myself clean. And so I actually started praying this prayer of, okay, God, you get me where you want me to be. You change the things in me you want done. Okay, God, you do it. Change my heart, oh God. I just give you permission to take me where you need me to be because all my striving to be good is getting me nowhere. In fact, it's making me worse. To be honest, my striving led me into more sin and more moral failing than anything else because I would get so down on myself. Do you guys know that that's how that works? When you start getting down on yourself, you actually push, that shame will push you down into sin because you're actually coming into agreement with the enemy. When you start getting into that shame space, what you're doing is you're coming into agreement with the thinking of the enemy. And so then the tempter has that much more access to you and you have that much more and he'll, the lies start pouring out. You're like, man, I can't be good at doing quiet times. He's like, you're right, you can't be good. And you know what else? You're not good at anything. You're terrible. You're the worst. And now those shaming, remember? Now that self-hatred comes on you. I mean, that's what happened when I, was a, when I was a teenager. That's exactly what happened to me. These things, I couldn't be like my parents with my quiet times. I wasn't disciplined enough. I'd make, you know, I kissed my girlfriend or whatever, and that was bad. And all these things started happening. And it was like the shame pushed me down until I gave up on trying in the wrong way and said, you know what? If I can't live... God's way, I'm just going to go my own. And it happened to me young. It started at 11 years old, which is terrifying now because my son's 11. But at 11 years old, I was, I had, in my shame over my inability to be disciplined, honestly, that's what it was at that point, my, my lack of discipline Oh, wait, I got to give my disclaimer. Sorry, just a second. Mom and dad, turn off the live stream. You don't want to hear this, okay? Like, just trust me. Give me five minutes and then come on back. I just, we don't need this in our relationship. You don't need all the truth. Um, Sorry, I really felt like I needed to do that for them because I love them and I want to spare them. Um, So I'm 11 years old and my lack of discipline and my lack of Christian disciplines were causing me to go into self-hatred and it actually created a space where I I was a very prophetic kid all growing up and then all of a sudden I felt like I couldn't hear from God and I felt like I couldn't come into his presence and I became lonely, incredibly lonely and so when I went out looking for acceptance because I couldn't get it from him because I wasn't good enough, man, the enemy was right there with acceptance. And 11 years old I started drinking because that's who found me was the kids who were drinking. 
by the time I was 16, I was drinking heavily, smoking heavily, and then still going to church on Sunday and being on the worship team. Like, I was so two-faced, it was awful. But it was the shame that pushed it on me. Because it all started with, I can't be good enough to get acceptance from God, so I'm going to stop trying that way. And I thank God that he saved me. It came all the way to the point that after I graduated high school, my girlfriend, my high school girlfriend, who my parents did not know I was dating as far as I'm aware of, and my brothers didn't know I was dating, I was so split in terms of my two lives. Um, I was so filled with shame and hatred and, and, and just wretchedness. I, not only could I not face God, honestly, I also was getting to a place I couldn't face my family and my parents. And we actually were making, we'd made plans and I was putting in a transfer at work and I was going to leave the province, which would be like your state. Um, and I was going to change my phone number and I was going to disappear in the night because I couldn't face my parents anymore. I felt so ashamed of who I was. And it all started with because I couldn't be good enough and disciplined enough. And it got all the way to the point that I was willing to throw my whole life away. Now I thank God for my oldest brother. He came over unknowingly. I have, still to this day, I have no idea why he came to my parents' house that day. My parents were in Korea doing a ministry trip. And, um, and it, my parents were good parents. This is not like, please, do not go to the place of, how did they let this happen? I was a better liar than they were at asking questions. That's all. Um, and, but my brother came over. And, I, and it's like, he just asked me. My, my girlfriend was there. And he said, I think you should ask her to leave. And I was like, Okay. So I asked her to leave. And he just said, hey, Ben, what's going on? And I said, a lot of things you don't know about or nobody else does. See, what happened was the light and the grace of God through my brother came in. And I saw a plan of escape. I could get out of it. Because the goodness of God that was in my brother Tim revealed itself to me. And my brother, who had been, at other times in my life, grumpy and angry and, you know, beat me up like older brothers do and stuff like that, in that moment, he had the goodness of God, he had the grace of God to show me grace and mercy and to not bring me condemnation, but to just say, he just asked me, is this what you want? No. No, it's not what I want. I'm lost and I don't know how to get out. He was like, okay, I'll help. And my life changed in an instant. What's my point? When it's based on your own goodness, you'll either go into the self-righteous, I should have more because I'm better, I should be saved and justified because I'm doing things better, or you'll go into self-loathing. And self-loathing only creates room for the enemy to take you out. Both do. It cannot be based 
on your own goodness. And if you think this is true just for coming out of sin and coming to Christ and things like that, let's see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You can slip that over for me, Jeff. There should be one more. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is true for us now. This is true for us. Paul is telling the first Corinthians to remember one of the things that they're struggling with in that church is their own sense of self-righteousness and the division it's creating. And he's like, wait a second, don't you remember who you were? Don't you remember? You weren't, God didn't pick you because you were so wise. God didn't pick you because you were such a great leader. You were so powerful. You were so wonderful. God picked you because he's good and his goodness could shine through you because you were just the opposite of those things. And because you were weak, he could show himself strong. And so when you come in, remember that you can't boast in anything except in the Lord. I'm telling you, if you want to get into a place of praise, simply remember that the only person you can boast in is the Lord. Don't try and come boasting in my goodness and how great everything is. And don't try and come and boast in your paycheck. Don't try and come even and boast. Just boast in the Lord. Look at how good he is. Look at how good God is. Listen, that's the representation that's going to save the world. If our representation to the world is, look at how much better you are, we are than you, it ain't going to get it done. But if we just say, look at how good God is, and you can have every bit of it too, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, you can have it, just boast in the Lord. You can just say, look at how good God is, and people, that's infectious. Do you get that? The goodness of God is infectious. The goodness of man is sickening, because it's a fallacy. So when you come, come and boast in the Lord. And if you've had a good week, lift your head up and say, God, thank you that you're good and your goodness was so present this week. And when you've had a bad week, be like, God, thank you that you're good and your goodness has led me through this week. And when you've had moral failings, be like, thank you, God, that you're good and you redeem all things. The response always needs to be, thank you, God, that you're good. And when you know you've really messed up, it's okay to come and say, God, have mercy on me, as David did. It's okay to say, God, create in me a clean heart. And when you feel like, man, I can't, I keep having this thing. It messes up in my life over and over again. I can't get this straight. Be like, okay, God, I'm going to be done trying and I'm going to put it on you. Come and change my heart, oh God. Come and give me a new heart. Come and give me a new spirit. I said to somebody last night, the promise of God isn't that you're going to be able to beat your heart into submission. The promise of God is that he's going to give you a new heart. So stop trying to beat your heart into being good and start recognizing, God, you can give me a new heart and your heart is always good. So let's boast in the Lord. Why don't we stand? Now, 
there's a few things I want to get into, but first I felt like the Lord wanted me this week to say, if you haven't cried out to Jesus for a new heart ever before, if you've never called out to him to come with his goodness and take your mess, if you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never stepped out and asked him to give you his life in exchange for yours, today's the day. Today's the day for you. All you have to do is call on the Lord and he will come and he will take your hard heart and he will take your brokenness and he will take your pain and he'll take the bleakness and he'll take it and he'll give you his goodness and he will change your life for forever.